Welcome back to our journey through Scripture. Today we're in Leviticus, and I know you're jumping up and down right now with excitement. Um, truly, truly excited here as we go through the book of Leviticus. I say that tongue-in-cheek because many of us, myself included, have been journeying along in perhaps a Bible reading plan. You know, you've read through Genesis you, you made it through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and you finally get to the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, and you just get so overwhelmed. I mean, you start thinking, wow, there's so many weird laws and regulations in this book of the Bible. And so Leviticus has been the death of many Bible reading plans. And so uh, today I'm, I'm hoping to recover Uh, a love for the book of Leviticus. Uh, Let me start with a large question that I I think that the book of Leviticus is trying to answer. Here's the question. How in the world can the creator and holy God and king dwell among us a sinful and impure people without totally melting us? How is that possible? And I believe the answer is found in the book of Leviticus. Well, as we're trying to do in this journey through Scripture, as we go through a book of the Bible each week, is I want to give a narrative summary for the book, and then I've chosen a sample passage from the book that we'll look at that has implications for us today. So let's get started here with the narrative summary of Leviticus And with all of these narrative summaries, we're we're sort of asking questions to try to answer, why does Leviticus show up at this point in the story? Uh, What is the historical context? What main themes are covered in this book? And then how does Leviticus relate to me? Does Does it have anything to say to me and my culture? Well, let's start with why does the book of Leviticus show up at this point in the story. Now, at first glance, I'll agree that most of this book seems pretty bizarre uh, in terms of the the weird rules and regulations. However, uh, just like any piece of literature that you and I read, it's very important to ask, how would the original audience have read this? How would they have received this book called Leviticus. And uh, the Israelites, here's the answer, the Israelites would have received the book of Leviticus with great excitement because it was life-giving instruction. It was instructing them around that question of how is it possible for a holy God to dwell among his people without utterly consuming them? So it was, it was life-giving for those Israelites. And, and it helped them to know that their God was in their midst and how they too were to reflect God's goodness, God's mercy, God's kindness, and God's justice throughout the entire land. Now, just a time and place clue. So the book of Leviticus is essentially a continuation of the book of Exodus. Uh, the entire book of Exodus uh, occurs in about, uh, about one year at the base of Mount Sinai. And uh, 
it is basically that God has invited his people into a covenant and quickly they rebel. And you'll remember how the book of Exodus ends, that the Israelites have just built this huge tabernacle. And when we say that, you can think of big wedding tent there in Exodus chapter 40, that the Lord descends from heaven. This holy God is going to descend from heaven in this cloud, and there's flashes of lightning, and there's thunder, and God's dwelling is in their midst. Um, And so if you're an Israelite, if you're that original audience there, if you're an Israelite, you have some burning questions. And the major question is, how is this going to work out? We know that we are covenant breakers. We know that we are sinful. And we also know that God as creator and king is holy. So how's this going to work out? And so the answer to these questions that those Israelites have uh, is found in the book of Leviticus. Here's how the book of Leviticus fits in the larger redemptive storyline of the Bible. Uh, If you look at the first sentence here in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says that the Lord spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. And then if you look at the first sentence of the next book of the Bible, Numbers, which we'll be covering next week, it says in chapter 1, verse 1, that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. The point is, the book of Leviticus worked. God was in the book of Leviticus speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting. Uh, And so, uh, later on in the book of Leviticus, which we'll be covering today, there, there is a high priest. There's a mediator, obviously pointing towards Christ as that mediator. And so, uh, Leviticus works. Uh, It it works. That's the good news of this book that uh, numbers can start by saying the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. There's now truer fellowship with God through a mediator. So despite Israel's failure, God remains faithful and provides a way for their sin to be covered so that God can live with a sinful people in peace. And so the book of Leviticus ends with Moses calling Israel to covenantal faithfulness. Uh, Hey, let's let's remember this covenant that God has made with us. And if we do, there's blessings and peace. And uh, Moses also warns them that if they are unfaithful and they dishonor God's holiness, it's going to result in disaster. It's not going to go down well. And ultimately, he's referring to exile from the land that was promised to Abraham. So the five major themes uh, covered in the book of Leviticus. And uh, by the way, if this is moving uh, too quickly for you, uh, feel free to just pause what you're watching or listening to here and uh, and rewind, or even go back and listen to the... Um, the sermons on Genesis and Exodus uh, before getting to this one. Um, So the five major themes covered in this book are rituals, priests, purity, holiness, and atonement. First of all, with rituals. Rituals that that Israel was to practice in God's presence. 
It was a way to say thank you to God. That's what some of these rituals were for all that God had given them. Another type ritual was to say, we're sorry, God. We've sinned against you. And then there were annual feasts. Those two were rituals that sort of helped them retell the story of how God had delivered them from their slavery and led them through the wilderness. And that story was to shape their identity. The next major theme is that of priests. These priests came from the tribe of Levi. Levi is one of 12 sons of Jacob. You'll remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mentioned there in the book of Genesis. And they were set apart. They were ordained by God to represent the people before God and to represent God to the people. They were a mediator. Uh, The next major theme is that of purity, dealing with Israel's uh, purity. There's both ritual purity here as well as moral purity. Ritual purity was to say that uh, Israel must be clean and pure when going into God's presence. God is holy. So they're um, given rules here in the book of Leviticus uh, for things like no contact with with reproductive fluids if you're going to be going into uh, God's presence. No skin disease, no touching mold or fungus, and no touching a dead body. Now, it wasn't sinful to be impure from those ways just mentioned. They were just a normal part of everyday life. What was sinful, however, was to casually walk into God's presence carrying those symbols of impurity on your body. Don't do that. Casually, uh, with a cavalier attitude as though it didn't matter, don't do that. One example is two of Aaron's sons, also ordained as priests, walk right into God's holy presence and flagrantly violate the rules and are consumed by God's holiness on the spot. And so it's just a reminder that God's presence is pure goodness, but becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. It's not something to be mocked or played around with. The next type of purity is moral purity. And uh, as history repeatedly teaches us, power without moral purity is tyranny. You can have all the power. You can have all sorts of uh, titles around your name and even a great position of power. But if there's not moral purity and moral character that goes along with that power, it's just tyranny. God is not simply a powerful king but God is a good king. And so the Israelites were created as God's people to live differently than the Canaanites. They were to care for the poor instead of overlooking them. They were to have a high level of sexual integrity. And they were to promote justice throughout the land because these laws represented the values of the lawgiver. Next is the theme of holiness. That the word holiness occurs 73 times in the book of Leviticus. 
that God, once again, is holy. We are not, and yet we are called to reflect God's holiness. The last major theme is that of atonement. And this is a, a gracious act of the Lord to cover our sin and to be a representative and a mediator in our place, pointing to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So how does the book of Leviticus relate to you? And how does the book of Leviticus relate to us in modern day? Well, first of all, it is, it is great news. It is great news. There's hope for us that in the midst of my darkest, most dumbest, most rebellious sin, God has made a way for me, and God has made a way for sinners to know him and be accepted by him. That's the good news found in Leviticus. And so also how it relates to us is that whenever Jesus came to establish this new covenant, the old one is no longer in force. The old covenant there in the Old Testament is no longer in force. That means that the laws in the Old Testament and the the old covenant don't necessarily apply. Many of the laws in the Old Covenant are repeated in the New Testament, however, and those do apply. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's repeated several times in the New Testament. Laws on sexual ethics. Um, Ethics in how we're to treat the immigrant and the foreigner among us. Uh, All of those, etc., 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 of how we um, are shaped by who God is and how we're to live in this world. Wow, there's our narrative summary of the book of Leviticus. And so now we'll uh, look at a sample passage that has some implications for us today. I've chosen Leviticus 19, and there are selected verses that you can follow along with uh, us through the QR code there. So uh, Leviticus 19 is our sample passage today, and so let me read these selected verses here for us. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement 
for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When the stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Well, as I read through the book of Leviticus this week and uh, got through, and I'll be honest, I fell asleep just a few times, but uh, as I began to be reminded again and again that the overall thrust of the book of Leviticus is that of atonement. That of atonement. And it shows up here, it pops up in verse 22 that we just read. I invite you to go back and look at verse 22 right now. Look at this verse. Look at this verse. And verse 22 is here. It's embedded amidst all of those commandments. Uh, Atonement is embedded right here to the original audience and to us modern day readers because God knows we need atonement. It's something very important. So while we're given these commandments, there's also this need and gift of atonement. How beautiful. There's a need and there's a gift of atonement here. And so Leviticus basically is a signpost to Jesus Christ as God's atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so in case you were wondering, where does Jesus show up and how does Jesus relate to the book of Leviticus? Well, we're going ahead right now and bringing Jesus out Uh, instead of saving it to the end to bring Jesus out. What we want to say here is two main points today regarding atonement. And that is Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. That's our first point. And the second point is Jesus and the return to Eden. Let's cover this first main point. Jesus as both priest and sacrifice. Verse 22 As you're looking at it there, it shows up here in the middle of this list of commandments because God knows that we need, we need a priest and we need a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Now let's read verse 22 together here. And the priest shall make atonement with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for their sin that they have committed, and and he shall be forgiven of the sin that he has committed. Now, when it comes to atonement, the book of Leviticus, as I was reading this week, I was reminded that there are four essential things regarding the atonement uh, found here in Leviticus. And I'm hoping to show how Jesus fulfills all four of those. The first thing here about atonement found in the book of Leviticus is that sacrifices are offered by priests on behalf of themselves and others. Now, in the New Testament, the good news for us in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 is that because Jesus is perfect, Jesus isn't offering sacrifices for himself. There's no need for him to make atonement for his own sin. He's without sin. And so he can make it on behalf of others 
through his perfection, but he's not making atonement for sin uh, on his own behalf. And so that's one of the uh, incredible differences uh, whenever we think about Leviticus and how Jesus fulfills the atonement. Uh, the second essential for atonement in the book of Leviticus is that sacrifices pay the sinner's debt and it cleanses their sin. We find in the New Testament this fulfillment through the person of Jesus. John, um, the gospel writer, and also the three uh, letters of John, as well as the last book of the Bible, Revelation. But in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, The sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross cleanses you from all of your sin. He says that if we confess our sin, God is faithful, God is just, and God will cleanse you of all of your sin. That comes through Jesus. Not through, ultimately not through those priests there in the Old Testament. The third essential thing regarding atonement in the book of Leviticus is that sacrifices must be perpetually repeated. You notice the inadequacy of these sacrifices. Man, as you go through the Old Testament, in particular as you read through the book, the book of Leviticus, you, you just get this feeling of, of overwhelmment because you think, when is enough of these sacrifices going to be enough? As you're reading through Leviticus, you, you are sort of watching the priest and their garments are just filled with blood. Because day in and day out, they are just sacrificing one animal after another so that humanity's sin can be forgiven. And the point of Leviticus is that it's not enough. These sacrifices are not enough. The system that God had created in the Old Testament is not enough. Yesterday's sacrifices... For yesterday's sin is not enough for today's sin. Or tomorrow, let alone tomorrow's sin. The system, the Old Testament system of sacrifices, it is sort of crying out for a once and for all redeemer, a once and for all sacrifice. One that's really going to do it. Every sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, is crying out for a once and for all sacrificial lamb. The Lamb of God, Jesus. Jesus, as the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, as he's referred to in John chapter 19, who would come and live perfectly. He would die as a substitution forever ending the need for sacrifices. Let me ask a question right now. Are you, as you listen to this, are you waking up each new day refreshed and renewed with this good news? Are you preaching this good news to yourself each day? Are you reminded of this good news? That even though in the Old Testament how the sacrifices must be perpetually repeated you, you look at Christ once and for all sacrifice for you on behalf of your sins, past, 
sins, present day sins, and even future sins. That's what Hebrews chapter 7 refers to Jesus as a greater priest. And the fourth essential regarding the atonement here in the book of Leviticus is that the atonement isn't earned by the Israelites. They're not to go out and start doing a bunch of good things. So, you know, accrue a lot of moral credit points so that God then atones for their sin. No, no. The atonement is not earned by the Israelites, but it's given as a gift from God. And so in my reading and study this week, as I'm looking, as I'm looking here through the book of Leviticus, I had to go back to Leviticus chapter 16 again and again. And Leviticus chapter 16 is this incredible key chapter about atonement. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the most solemn day in the Jewish calendar year. Yom, the Hebrew word for day. Kippur, the Hebrew word for atonement. An atonement which means to cover for our sins. Yom Kippur, that most holy day there. The priest could enter the holy place to offer sacrifices for sin throughout the year. Priests could do that. But odds are that as priests were doing that, uh, inevitably they weren't either remembering or they weren't offering enough sacrifices for all of the sins of the people. Or even imagine that as they're offering sacrifices for the sins of the people, the people are still out there committing more sins. And so... The beautiful design of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was one day per year where the high priest could go into the most holy place of that tabernacle and offer uh, a sacrifice for uh, and atone for the sins of all of those people. And I'm referring to Leviticus chapter 16. There's basically two goats. Two goats that are going to be talked about here in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, one of the verses there in chapter 16 says that the priest will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over the goat all the wickedness and rebellion and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, the priest will transfer the people's sins onto the head of the goat. Then a man specifically chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. And as the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. Leviticus chapter 16 talks about two different goats. Uh, one goat is to be sacrificed as a sin offering. And the other goat uh, known as the scapegoat, is to be released, showing forgiveness. Both of these goats symbolize one and the same sacrifice, pointing towards, oh so powerfully and beautifully, pointing towards Christ, Jesus Christ, who is that sacrificial goat, and Jesus Christ, who is that scapegoat. What does this do for you? As you listen to this good news, it ought to elicit worship. 
It ought to elicit us bowing down before God. And and I want to lead us to Psalm 103, where it says, God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Wow, that's what it means to have that scapegoat there, that the priest is sort of laying the sins or transferring the sins onto the head of that scapegoat. It's going to travel into the wilderness and it's, it's going to carry the sins of the people far away from them. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament uh, mentions that uh, this, as, for the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith. See, that's how people in the Old Testament were saved. If you're wondering how these priests, I mean, did these priests really know that the scapegoat was pointing towards Jesus? Did they really know that all of these sacrifices would be a signpost to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus? Not necessarily so. But see, people in the Old Testament were saved in the same way that people in the New Testament were saved. Believing in God's provision. Abraham believed in God's covenant and in God's promise. And God counted it to him as righteousness. See, our sins are either paid for by ourselves. When we think about atonement, our sins are either paid for by ourselves And we either are going to try to ignore it or we're either going to try to be pretty damn good with our goodness. We're going to wear ourselves out with being or trying to be good and accrue enough moral credit points. Or, or our sins are going to be paid for and transferred to Christ. And that's what the gospel calls us to do is to repent Repent, that is, turn from depending on your own goodness. Turn from depending on your your own um, promise to obey God and believe in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus made on behalf of you and for all sinners who would believe in him. So we bow in humility before God, thanking God for this unmerited grace. Unmerited grace. And so this grace that we've received influences how we live. Influences how we live. And that gets us to our second main point today, Jesus and the return to Eden. I don't know about you, but I'm asked by non-Christian friends of mine, and even Christian friends of mine, repetitively, perhaps as you are asked, how did we get here as a people? What went wrong in this story? I mean, because things are clearly not the way that they used to be. Something went wrong. What, what, What happened? And is there any hope for us? And the last major question I usually hear is, how will this story end? And to quote the German philosopher Nietzsche, this is why Nietzsche 
would say that religion is the opium of the people. Religion, Christianity included, is just sort of your way of comforting yourself. It's the church's way, some people would say, who agree with Nietzsche, that it's the church's way of feeding people uh, some sort of motivation to just be good people out there. But no, no, the Bible disagrees with that philosophy. The, The Bible calls this good news, that there is an answer for how we got here, what went wrong, is there any hope, and how does the story end? The Bible and its redemptive narrative narrative explains that there are echoes, echoes of Eden. We all created by God in that original Garden of Eden had perfect harmony with God and one another and with creation. Yet because of a horrible crash, sin entered the world and has been on this destructive path to dehumanize us and we consequently are dehumanizing others and our creation is groaning to be renewed all the while. And so Leviticus, back to Leviticus here, Leviticus is casting a vision of signpost back to Eden. Back to Eden. That's where the journey is going to take us. It's, a, it's, it's what the New Testament is doing, that Jesus is casting the same vision for his followers. That's why in Jesus' model prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, in inaugurating his kingdom in first century, all of the miracles, all of the healings, God's kingdom was coming. And even now, as God lives and extends His kingdom through you, as He enables you to love the unlovable, His kingdom is coming. He is leading us back to Eden to restore the effects of the fall of humanity and restore humanity to Eden. There's this refrain here in Leviticus chapter 19. Did you catch it? I am the Lord your God. If you go back and read the entire chapter, that refrain happens about 16 times. Now this sounds familiar, doesn't it? I am the Lord your God. It should remind us, it should remind us of the last book of the Bible we looked at, the book of Exodus. Remember how in the book of Exodus, chronology mattered. That is, God saves them first. They're in Exodus chapter 12. He pulls them out of slavery and bondage. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. As a way to powerfully illustrate to that original audience and to us that we don't get redemption Uh, Because we have all the commands and we're desperately trying to obey them. No, no, it's God says, I am the Lord your God. Now, since I am the Lord your God, here are some commands. Go and obey them, being empowered by my presence with you. So verse 2, here in Leviticus chapter 19, you shall be holy 
You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, this holiness that is to be lived out in your life and my life and that of a Christ follower is a response, is a response to relationship with God. Some of you right now are thinking, I don't feel holy. I, I, I feel like a hypocrite. And this is your non-Christian friends, one of their major hurdles in becoming a follower of Christ is look at all of those hypocritical Christians. Look at them. First of all, a lot of those hypocritical Christians aren't necessarily Christians. But the good news here for those of us who don't fully and perfectly follow and obey all the commandments is that God still loves you and God still calls you holy and righteous, as mysterious as that is. But it's normal not to feel it. In fact, in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Peter, wow, go back and read some of uh, his letters and some of the stories about him in the gospel writers. Wow, what a sinner saved by grace. But he says there in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, you, he's speaking to Christians there, and he's speaking to you and I, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into God's marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. God is calling you holy. God is calling you a priest, whether you and I feel it or not. Certainly our record doesn't show up, but Christ's record proves it. See, Christ is forming a new community. Christ is forming a, a new family. And so in Old Testament, of course, it was they were known as God's people, God's chosen people, the Israelites, the, the Jewish nation. But God's design all along was for the nations to gather uh, all nations into this family. That was the Great Commission in Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham was to go and that all nations would come into this family. That is the Great Commission that we see in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 28. One of my seminary professors, Jay Sklar, at Covenant Theological Seminary, I remember one of the classes that he taught was on the book of Leviticus. He has an amazing commentary on the book of Leviticus. And I'll quote him here. He says, Simply put, the Israelites are not only to be a signpost back to Eden, they are to become a manifestation of it and a people who extend Eden's borders to every corner of the earth. That's our mission. That's our mission. This is the mission of Jesus. See, if... See, if if the gospel uh, says 
Um, there's grace for you to go out there and fulfill that mission. See, there's hope. There's hope with that message. And the other message is teaching us, hey, go out there and try your best. Go out there and, and, and you can do it. And that message will always lead you to either arrogance or depression. But since there's a gospel message of grace, finally people like you, finally people like me can stand before God and not have to hide in shame or guilt any longer. Because we have been robed in the righteousness of Christ. And maybe you're still stuck in that self, same self-righteous place say, saying, you know what, evil, sin, it, it's, it's, it's just somewhere out there somewhere. It's just those people. I, I would never participate in, 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 in evil like that. And before you keep lying to yourself. We have to embrace that evil, even as we just learned from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that there are sinful desires. There's even evil that war against our soul. Lord, have mercy. And so as we begin to look at some of these commands here, verse 3 Keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Um, verses 9 and 10. L listen to this one. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap your field right up to its edge. Don't gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Leave them for the poor and sojourner. Do you, do you hear the implications of that there in the Old Testament? That God was already thinking about the sojourner, the immigrant and the poor, to provide for them. Proactively remembering the poor. That's what it looks like for you and me to go back to Eden right now and to push back the effects of the fall right now. It's a call to live in such a way that you have extra around the margins of your life. Extra for those who need it. Extra money. Extra time for those who need your time. Extra set of ears to listen to people who need to talk and process things. Verse 11 here. Don't lie to one another. Wow, wow. see, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Don't lie to one another. Don't lie to one another is what that looks like. You don't have to exaggerate about who you are. I mean, aren't, aren't we all just so exhausted from trying to impress one another about either how smart we are, or how beautiful we are, how strong we are, or how resourceful we are. Who you are in Christ is enough. That's the good news. And one of the greatest things missing about Christians right now is a heart, a heart of honesty and humility, which leads to compassion and acceptance of others. 
I'm going to quote from a book called The Provocative Church, written by Graham Tomlin. And in this quote, Graham Tomlin is quoting Douglas Copeland in Life After God. And he says, now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt shall ever that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. That I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I am no longer capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love, as I seem beyond being able to love. See, before you go out there and get burned out, trying to do all of these commandments, trying to be holy, remember that God has lived a life for you. And that God is living his life in you. And as we close here, one last way of being a signpost back to Eden. Look at verse 33 and 34 here in our passage that says, Treat the stranger, treat the sojourner and the immigrant as you treat the native among you. Love him as you love yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, these Israelites knew how dehumanizing it was to be a foreigner in a foreign land and to be treated with such injustice. They longed to be treated with kindness. They longed to be treated with love and mercy and acceptance and to be brought in. These Israelites, these Israelites began to know a God who would hear their cry, who would deliver them, and who would accept them. And that teaches us that those who have truly experienced God's love, mercy, forgiveness, are the fastest ones to go and give it away to others. Why don't we pray right now that God would, through the atonement and through shaping our identity, God would enable us to go give it away to others. Let's pray right now. Father God, as we pray, we see more and more of your holiness. We see how beautiful you are. And that in our fallen condition, help us admit our need for you. Help us see others as created in your image. And help us extend your kingdom. Sort of extend the boundaries of Eden and truly be signpost back to Eden. Following our great, holy, and powerful King, Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.